what humans do is worship. We are worshiping creatures. And it's not just Christians that state this. Um, some of the most profound and intelligent atheists that I've ever had the pleasure of reading say the same thing. And what's different about a human than, say, an animal is we can actually choose what to worship. But it's what it means to be made in the image of God is to naturally, inexorably look for something to give peace to our hearts. And the problem is, we are given free will and therefore worship all sorts of things that cannot actually speak peace to our hearts. And the culture we live in demands or begs of us to worship other things. And what the gospel does is it heals us of our tendencies to put our allegiance and our affections in things that will never be able to speak to our heart. Some of you know I take Mondays off, and so Tuesday is my Monday in terms of I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, how will I get all this stuff done? And my very first thought on Tuesday morning was, man, I really wish we were still doing the Psalms because I don't want to talk about money. And I told my wife that, and she said, you should say that on Sunday, and she's wise and quite funny and interesting, and so I decided to share that with you. And here's the thing. Growing up in the culture that I grew up in, of televangelism and of hearing preachers say that if you give to God, blessed. If you give to God, you'll be blessed. And I agree with that if we define blessing the right way. But what I think they meant, and especially if you listen to the subtlety of some of these preachers is, strangely, if you give money to my organization, your bank account will actually go up, not down. It's this weird spiritual math. It's also heresy. It's heresy. And I don't use that word lightly. Perhaps you could tell by the way I'm inflecting my voice. Sometimes we say heresy and we mean it like a joke. I mean you're actually leading people away from Jesus. If you say, give me the money and then God will bless you materially. And the reason I say that is because it's wrong. I preached a sermon on it from the book of Job in 2015. And I listened to that sermon this week to see if it was any good. And it took me a while to get warmed up and then it was okay. We are not to let abuse stop us from the proper use of the scriptures. So the fact that there are people that will tell you that, lie to you, does not, stop the, does not keep us from engaging the words of Jesus Christ about money. And he talked about it a lot. It doesn't stop us from going to the Apostle Paul and, and seeing what he says to churches about supporting that church and other ministries in and around them. We do not let abuse block us from the fact that there is a proper use, there is a proper teaching in the scriptures on finance. And a lot of times when pastors do this, they say time, talents, and treasures, and that's true. Those things are all yours to steward if you're a follower of Jesus. That's what we believe about all of our gifts and our time and our money is that we're to steward it. But I'm not going to preach that way because sometimes we can group them and pretend that Jesus didn't speak very directly about money. In Luke chapter 12, a man asks Jesus a question and he's probably like me, the man who asked the question, kind of a verbal processor. And if he had asked anyone in the crowd, hey, I was thinking about asking Jesus this, they'd be like, oh gosh, are you nuts? Please don't ask Jesus that question. I'm in Luke chapter 12, and you think I'm kidding. Verse 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, 
tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And his brother ran out of the room. <laughs> it doesn't say that. But. but Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, and all the people near the guy start elbowing him, like, why did you ask him that question? The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And Jesus said, being rich is a sin. No. And Jesus said, being rich is the problem. Nope. Verse, I'll pick up on verse 17 again. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops, which is, by the way, not true. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. See, so he had more than one barn. And build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Well, in 2018, with the internet, we know whose they will be. They will be the government. <laughs> right? At least 50%. Verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Despite the fact that I know you loved my commentary, I'm going to read that whole section of Scripture again without commentary. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of, one's, of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus spoke about money often. And the reason is the curse erodes our humanity. Do you know the curse? The curse is when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden stopped trusting that God was for them. They went their own way and sin entered the world and began to break it physically and through people. The whole world is under the curse until Jesus returns and makes all things new. What the curse does to me and to you is it makes me prone to envy, which is longing for something that someone else has and having a sneaking suspicion that you deserve it more than them. That's a biblical definition, not Merriam-Webster, okay? Don't, I don't need the Merriam-Webster email. It's okay if you send it, but it's a biblical definition. Because in the Bible, jealousy is an okay thing. Longing for something is not evil. It's when it turns into envy or covetousness. Covetousness is more directly desiring something that someone else has without it yet turning into envy. What the curse does is it sends us to, we, are, we become very prone to envy and to greed and to covetousness. And that is an erosion of our humanity. 
It is an erosion of the image of God in you. It violates love for God and neighbor. It harms our neighbor and ourself when we accept the world and our false selves and the enemy tricking us into envy and covetousness. When Jesus spoke about it, he was speaking about how the gospel changes our affections and our allegiances. Our affections are no longer for things that cannot speak to our soul. And our allegiances are no longer to things that don't deserve allegiance because they're things. Jesus will speak on money regularly because of how the gospel comes in in a fundamental way and changes our hearts so that we long for things that can actually speak to our soul and to give it rest. The gospel heals and we respond to that. We respond to the healing of it. And first I want to remind us that the reason it heals is not only because only it can speak rest to our hearts, but also because it's true. This is so important. And I try and figure out how can I bring this up in a new way often enough without irritating the people that listen to me very carefully because a lot of you listen to me very carefully. And that's really honoring. We respond to the gospel because it's true. I did a series on the Psalms, and do you know how the Old Testament was transmitted to us from generation to generation? Most of us could not have been on that team because it was too precise. The Masoretes would take a text, and they would transfer it page by page. And when they got done with a page, copying it 3,000 years to today, if the number of characters was off, not the words, they would burn the page. That's how committed they were to transmitting the text from generation to generation. A lot of the complaints that people have about the Gospels being inconsistent are actually defenses of the very truthfulness and historical accuracy of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Their criticisms are a little off too, but we won't get into that too much. The book of Acts, especially in the 21st century, shockingly accurate about the governmental systems. Do you know the governmental system of England? What is it, a democratic monarchy? What's Germany's system? I could probably not name more than two. And Luke, in the book of Acts, names with exceptional precision all the governmental systems that they encountered in the early church. And we didn't even know he was accurate archaeologically until about the last hundred years. If I preach this sermon in the 1800s, I can't use this as an illustration. And what I want to remind you is our faith and our hope and our leaning into the with God life is not a religious abstraction. It comes from regular people inspired by God who existed in space and time and history. You're like, I thought this was a sermon on money. It is. I'm, coming, I'm bringing it back. So the gospel heals us of the, of the curse, our tendencies to greed and envy and covetousness, and we respond because that's what followers do. When we note the Father heart of God, we inevitably respond to that. And it's not only Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Commandments 1, 2, 3, 4, 8, and 10 overlap with how do we deal with money as a follower of God? Because of the Father heart of God, Exodus 19 the promise always comes before the command. We respond by calling him God and him alone. We respond by avoiding idolatry. We respond by avoiding hypocrisy as best we can. Commandment three, 
We respond by taking a day off. And some of you are in businesses where it's demanded that you not take a day off. And that presents a very strong challenge. But others of us don't take a day off because of our issues surrounding money. Commandment eight is don't steal. How could we possibly not steal? It would have to be at least in part because we're content with what we have. Commandment 10, don't covet. Same thing, being content with what we have. And so followers of Jesus embrace the potential envy and greed and covetousness by believing that God is good and in control and then responding to that gospel in these ways. And this is not only something that we do internally, it's something that we teach our children. Um, I was talking to my kids this morning, and because I'm preaching the sermon, I reminded them to bring some of the money from their give jar and put it in the back, and they didn't know how to, to do that physically, and that's my fault as a pastor. The way that we receive money here at the church is through online stuff and also those boxes in the back. And I'll explain why there are boxes in the back in part in just a minute. But I felt bad because I'm talking to my 12-year-old who has three jars, and she's had them for at least six years. Give, save, spend. If you've ever interacted with Crown Financial or with Dave Ramsey, you know that that's what followers of Jesus do as stewards of what God has given them. They give, and it's in that order. They give as an act of worship. They save as an act of humility. And then they spend. Because God longs for you to enjoy what he's asked you to steward. And I'm way more excited about that sermon than this one. It'll be way easier to preach. <laughs> And some of you are like, I can't teach my kids that. I'm such a hypocrite with respect to money. My kids are going to eventually ask me, Dad, did you ever struggle with giving and saving and spending? Well, how much time you got? Because I struggle mightily with those things. When I was a younger man, I was worse at saving, and giving was easier for me, but then the shame of how I wasn't saving, especially in my 20s, bothers me. Now that I'm better at saving, it's harder to give. Have you ever seen these statistics on that? Statistically speaking, most people, as their salary goes up, give less because of the curse, because of the culture attempting to tell us that those things, whatever it is, whether it's money in and of itself or the things that money can buy, can speak to our soul. Even though I know that you know that they can't, that's part of the reason that you're sitting here. My point is we have to teach our children this. The order, give, save, spend. Give is back to God. Sometimes my kids want to give to a different organization. I'm cool with it. Save is for later, and that changes over time as they get older. Spend whatever you want within reason, of course, within reason. And this applies to other things, parents. We do not teach our children the things we know well. We teach them the things of God. His promises and his commands. And when they ask us if we nailed it, we'll say, nope. But I still see it in the text. So I don't know if you thought the title to the sermon was compelling or not. You could send me an email maybe on a scale of one to 10. How clever did you think it was? What I wanna say and then I'll expand on is what's better than tithing is planning in a joyful way. And whether you believe the tithe exists or it doesn't, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Some Christians believe that there's still a tithe. I'll explain what tithe means in just a second. Some believe they, that it doesn't. But what's clearly better is to plan ahead and to do so joyfully about what you're going to do to steward what God has asked you to steward.
So for the record, 10 would be, that was pretty darn clever, and one would be not clever at all, if you want to send me the email. The gospel heals us, and we respond in a local way. We respond with the money he's asked us to steward in a local way. I'm going to speak kind of personally for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're a member of this church, or you're a follower of Jesus and you call this church your church home, I hope that you give because you're excited about what's going on. And I say that knowing that you have not liked every change. Some of you cannot believe the things I have not changed in five years. And others of you are like, are you kidding? He's changed all this stuff and I don't like it. Some of those I even changed by accident. It wasn't even on purpose. I hope that you're excited because we get to be the church in this local place. We get to worship together. We get to to make much of the things of God. We get to receive the nourishment of the sacrament. I hope that excites you. I hope it excites you. The missionaries were able to support. Some churches do that and some don't. It's a relatively Western idea, though some of the churches in the New Testament were able to do it. They had enough coming in that they were able to support other missions and ministries. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. And I was going through the later New Testament and watching how Paul talked with the churches about money, and one of the most encouraging things is he talks a little differently to each churches, each church, because he doesn't assume it's the same for everyone. I think the people that think you're supposed to tax on gross, not net, they've got to be from the Midwest. There's no way they lived in the taxes of Connecticut, right? <laughs> I'm serious. It's amazing. And Paul, when he's writing to different churches, assumes different things and assumes that people are already planning and they're doing it in a household way and they're doing what they can. And I know uh, many of you have been doing what you can towards the church in a planned and generous and joyful way for decades. And listen, if that's you, I hope this sermon encourages you. And that's all you take away from it. If you plan every year and you pray, you give generously as you're able and I hope you stop taking notes. You're like, I never take notes. Well, don't take any more. <laughs> and you're encouraged by this. But for the rest of us, we need to turn and return to the text as a way of leaning into the gospel, healing us from the curse. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. You catch all the things that Paul's assuming there? He's assuming that they want to give. He's assuming that they have enough to support their local church, which he talks about in several other books. And he's assuming that they want to support those other churches and that they'll set aside money on Sunday, but then not bring it with them, but give it to them later. So he doesn't even say how to give that money which maybe is why you didn't even know that there were boxes in the back where we could receive money. And here, here's what I know. I know that this part of the country, you can make well over $100,000 a year and live in a modest home and still not be sure how to pay your mortgage, over $10,000 a year in property taxes, your student loans, your car loans, and food and everything else. I know, I do actually understand that. And... The gospel calls us towards generosity, and it begins locally. 
all, the assumptions that Paul makes are that it's joyful, that they're going to plan, and that they're going to give in such a way that it's not noticed by others. So some people argue about gross and net. Once again, I think there are probably people that live with less taxes than us here in Connecticut. People discuss the 10%. And here's, do you guys know the word tithe? It literally means 10%. 10, it literally means 10. It's an agrarian term. And the two pastors that I look up to the most disagree on whether there's still a tithe or not. Going to 2 Corinthians, and God loves a generous giver, one of the pastors that I respect says that the tithe is the bare minimum. And the other one says it's gone. Joyful planning is what we do. Should you give all of your money to the church? I don't think so, because in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's assuming they're taking care of the church and they have a little bit extra for the other ministries going on around the Mediterranean. But I do think it needs to begin with the church, because the entire New Testament would assume that if you're a follower of Jesus committed to a local gathering, that you are committed to that. And again, on a personal level, if you're a member or consider this your church, I hope that you're excited. Over the five years that I've been here, the people that have joined the church, have about half of them have said, I just didn't know there was a church like the barn in Connecticut. You know what that speaks to? Not me. You that have been here for 10 years or 20 or 40 or 50. Your worship is evangelistic to those that are checking out our church. Do you know that you have paid someone's electric bill if you've ever given money to the church? Did you know that? You're like, nope, I have never paid someone's electric bill. That's incorrect. You have if you've given money to the church because the ministry of the deacons looks out for those in our midst who need a little bit of support for whatever circumstantial reason because the stock market crashed or their job was eliminated or something else. And I'm so thankful, and I hope that excites you and encourages you as a follower of Christ at what the spiritual family is called to do with and for one another. Did you know that there are people in the country of Senegal who have the scriptures for the first time because of missionaries that we support? I hope that you knew that and you were excited and encouraged by that. That's where the first chunk, if you give $100 to the church, the first nine of it goes to our overseas missionaries. The thing that I think we're getting better at as a church, not as individuals, the individuals of this church I do not think are bad at this, but as an organization we are, and it's on me and we're working on it, is being faithfully present to the least of these in our area. The homeless. The victims of trafficking. Those without food. And we're getting better at that. And I hope that that encourages you. Two weeks ago, I got an email from a pastor in our presbytery named Bonnie Gatchel, who works for a ministry called Route One. And I know I talk a lot about Route One, and it's because I think what they're doing is cool, and I think we have a role in supporting them. And I think it's less far away from you than you think it is, and I hate it when people say that to me. But you can tell me afterwards whether I was right or not. So what Bonnie does with 17 volunteers is they go into strip clubs and they meet with the dancers and the owners know this and they do it in Boston and Worcester and in Springfield and they befriend them and once they've been friends for a little while they talk to them about Jesus and if the dancers would like to get out of the industry they help them 
because it is legalized prostitution. And this is the email she wrote me a couple weeks ago. It was actually an email to Carrie Reeves and I. Carrie is the woman we hired to live in the retreat center and help us outreach to the least of these. Matt and Carrie, I hope you're well. I was recently given a copy of some of your prayers from Matt. It's truly beautiful. Recently, Route One did a training on trauma and trauma-informed care. As part of the training, we gave people time to write a moment of trauma from their own life. You know that, right? A lot of doctors and pastors and counselors and people that work with trauma, it's because something happened to them and they're interested in being part of the healing process. Well, the 17 volunteers with Route 1, most of them have experienced significant trauma. That's part of the reason they volunteer with them. As part of the training, we gave people time to write a moment of trauma from their own life. This can be daunting to keep up morale or to help people feel less alone or overwhelmed. We wrote several prayers of carries on large sticky notes. Think of it a post-it note the size of a movie poster and hung them in various places around the room. The women were inspired and it helped them process their own trauma. Like, what does that have to do with the barn? Well, you pay me. If you've given money to the church, some of that goes to pay me as a pastor. And so I'm spending some of my time trying to network with the least of these when and where Carrie tells me to, frankly. And it's not just that. Do you go to trunk or treat? And you're like, are we really going from strippers to trunk or treat? Oh, yeah. (laughs) We're transitioning just like that. Because people from the neighborhood showed up here and they had fun with their families. And because it was so close in proximity to what happened in Pittsburgh, we had a moment of silence because we know that God opposes violence and hate. I hope that encourages you. That happened because Ahana Lawton is a good leader and desires for our families to love one another well and to invite other families in the neighborhood to go to it, and it costs money. I got an email from a parent about some of the things that their kids are hearing in public schools about Christianity that are incorrect. And we talked a lot about how good of a job Will Downey is doing, discipling our junior high and high school students. That's what the money goes to when you give it to the church, and I hope that excites you and encourages you. I have seen so many people from our church walking the property, sitting at the back for the sunset, sitting at the brook and praying. And this might seem trite to you, but it costs money to to maintain that, and I hope that it excites you that that's what happens if you give to this church. I believe it's ours to do, to create a place of Trinitarian, cruciform worship for followers of Jesus, to glorify him and to praise him. I believe it's ours to do to take care of one another as best we can, and many of you are doing all you can with your time and with your money. I believe it is ours to do to get better at ministering to the least of these. And we're working on it in a whole bunch of ways at the same time. And if you want to be more involved, let me know. We do all of that for his glory, for neighbor's good, and for our own healing. That's why we follow the promises of God and then lean into his commands about the with God life. It's to glorify him 
to love one another and get better at loving one another and to reach out to the least of these in our midst and in our community. This is just as much about our vision as the vision series in September. We do that to honor him. That's where it begins. We do it to take care of one another and we do it to become our true selves. The gospel of Jesus, the good news that God loves and likes you, and because of the work of Christ, you're reconciled means you're not alone anymore. You have the Holy Spirit when you entrust your heart and mind to Christ. The good news frees us from loneliness into spiritual community that is incredibly imperfect, but community nonetheless. And it frees us from our tendencies in the world assaulting ideas of greed and covetousness and envy into generosity. To the Philippian church, Paul writes at the end after thanking them for being his first financial partners in the ministry, he says something that is abused sometimes by those, well, I'm just going to say it, evil people that say if you, if you give, God will bless you with more financial wealth. He says this, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The reason that we lean into the gospel and its teachings on money are for his glory, for our community, and for our own selves to be freed into lives of life where we're content in all circumstances, where we experience the joy of the Holy Spirit where we know and can say that God has supplied every need of ours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are a mix of emotions when it comes to this topic because our affections and our allegiances are all over the place. And yet you are good. You call us to yourself. And you call us to lives of life. You free us not only from the loneliness of the human condition, but into lives of life, including what we do with what you have asked us to steward. Help us, Jesus. Amen.